This morning we're going to have a scripture read by Susie Zachariah before Ashley comes up and teaches. And before that, I'd like to sing over you and maybe teach you a brand new refrain. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> Ask in my name and all things will be given. Ask in my name found in John chapter 16 verses 20 through 22 I tell you the truth you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices you will grieve but your grief will turn to joy a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come but when her baby is born she forgets she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. This is the word of the Lord. Ask in my name, and all things will be. Ask in my name, and you will have peace in me. You will have peace in me. Well, good morning again, Mars Hill. Since the first time I was up here, I've seen new faces, and I just want to take a moment. Look around. Look around you. Whether you came with someone you know or not, these brothers and sisters are our family. Those watching online, you have family here in the room. From a teaching long, long ago, Troy said, we're kinfolk, right? And it's really good to see my kinfolk here this morning. Um, as I so often do, I want to start off this morning with a story. A long, long time ago, in the year of our Lord, 2016, I did something that's now considered ancient practice. I boarded an airplane. This airplane was headed from Chicago to Houston, 
And I had special cargo in tow with me that day, a five-month-old child, and I was excited. I was excited because a dear friend who I'd known since first grade was getting married. And this was going to be a raucous celebration that weekend. It was going to be a reunion to rival all reunions. I was going to see family and friends, and my family and friends were going to get to see my son for the very first time. So I settled down in my seat. Again, it's just me and the baby. My plane took off, and an hour or so into the flight, it was clear, very, very clear that my son needed a diaper change. So we headed to the back of the plane with the necessary reinforcements in tow. And as I was changing his diaper, the plane rattled. And then it dipped. And as I was steadying myself between the walls, thinking we were in the clear, it stuttered and it dipped and it rattled again. Brothers and sisters, have you ever had to change a number two in the middle of turbulence? 10 out of 10 do not recommend. And I'll tell you this, I ended up exiting the lavatory with a baby. But because of the aforementioned events, that baby didn't have a shirt on. And that clean diaper had been caught up in the midst of those aforementioned events and was irreversibly compromised. So I waddled back to our seat with a baby, shirtless. The baby was shirtless. And we, <laughs> and we endured more turbulence, some of the worst I had experienced to this day. But eventually, three long hours later, we landed. And I exited the plane, shaken but not deterred, ready for a weekend of celebration. And can I tell you why? Because of someone who looked like this person. There's an important part of our journey I forgot to mention. At the beginning of our flight, before we had taken off, a flight attendant put on a smile and a stellar presentation to which no one paid attention as they did an interpretive dance to a pre-written script. The script went something like this. You know how it goes. Ladies and gentlemen, we request your full attention as the flight attendants demonstrate the safety features of this aircraft. When the seatbelt sign illuminates, you must fasten your seatbelt. Insert the metal fittings one into the other and tighten by pulling on the loose end of the strap. You know how they do. I wish I had one of those straps, I'd show you, but you already know. To release your seatbelt, lift the upper portion of the buckle. We suggest that you keep your seatbelt fastened throughout the flight as we may experience turbulence. The presentation ended something like this. You will find this and all other safety features and information in the car located in the seat back pocket in front of you. We strongly suggest you read it before takeoff. Does anyone ever read it? No, no, no one ever. And it's not, there's, there's no words. It's just pictures of the people, the cartoons and the thing. There's no words to read. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask one of our crew members. We wish you all an enjoyable flight. Here's why the turbulence, those significant, scary, and very uncomfortable didn't throw me off. At some point, maybe not on that flight, but on the dozens of flights I'd taken before that, hearing that safety presentation over and over and over again, I knew turbulence was an expected part of the journey. So even though I was in the lavatory 
and didn't see the seatbelt sign illuminate. Even though I was caught off guard, even though I was literally navigating, dodging, trying to contain poo in an unexpected, uncomfortable place, I was not deterred. Brothers and sisters, some of us are navigating the current altitude of our lives and that of the world around us like we've never heard the safety presentation before. Say that was my first time on a plane. Say I didn't know how the seatbelt worked or about how common it is for winds to shift during a flight. Say the shaking and the rattling had come as a surprise and I was in this unexpected, uncomfortable place all alone. What might I have thought of the turbulence then? More than just a temporary place or a reality to endure, maybe my sweaty palms and my nauseous stomach would have convinced me that we were going down. Maybe I would have thought, this is the end. Or I would have braced myself for impact. Perhaps, in an extreme case, I would have even tried to grab some safety gear to scrounge up a parachute or something like that and bail all together. Maybe, at the very least, that would have ruined flight travel for me, and that would have been my first and very last flight on an airplane. Friends, sometimes we live perhaps even in these past weeks and months, as if we weren't aware of the fact that turbulence is sometimes part of the journey. Had I never paid attention, my reaction to the turbulence would have been grounded in despair versus the destination. So especially now as we endure failing health and sudden loss and financial threats and personal threats and racism, classism, sexism, mental health battles, marriage distress and the shaking and rattling of systems, people and institutions, the way we're teed up for turbulence directly impacts our perspective on the path ahead as we follow Jesus. As we continue our Messiah series here in John 16 this morning, Jesus is trying to tell his disciples what is to be an expected part of the journey ahead. And right out the gate, Jesus tells them why. He's told them everything from the past two chapters that we've learned about over the past couple of weeks. He says in verse 1, all this, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Not so that they'd have exclusive access to his club and feel special. Not so that they'd ease off the gas and put up their feet and coast. Up until that point, Jesus had comforted them and clarified their mission and promised them help by the way of the Holy Spirit because he knew after he went away there'd be turbulence ahead and the desire would be great for them to give up, to quit to be discouraged and grounded in despair versus committed and locked in on the destination in front of them. And in this one verse, I'm reminded that part of what it means to follow Jesus, friends, isn't just to say yes to the mission. That's part of it. It's not just to commit to looking more like him in much needed and very personal spiritual practices and disciplines. Those are important. But sometimes 
What it means to follow Jesus is to come to expect and be prepared for, as one version of this verse says, rough times ahead. I want to pause here because as I reflected on just this one verse, I realized that for some of, the, of us here in the shed or watching online, we may have missed this part. Maybe missed this part in church growing up where our Sunday school or VBS teacher didn't tell us this part in great detail, kind of skimmed over it to get to the joy and the peace part. But this is a really important part. We were taught the love of God, but not told how much we might lose. We were taught that grace was ours, but not how much we might be invited to give up. When Jesus said, come and follow me, we were taught that eternal life was promised, but not this kind of pain. Like maybe we were taught the value, the gold of the good news, but no one told us that refinement would need to happen. And so we get to a time like now, and because the people, whether the individual players in politics, the church, name an institution, the process, or the perks aren't suiting our personal desires, timelines, and comforts, because we feel trapped inside a cultural lavatory surrounded by cultural poo, the temptation is great to give into our discouragement. And for some, the temptation is great to even fall away. This isn't what my faith is supposed to get me. Who is this God? The word in Greek for this term to fall away is skandalizo. Does that look familiar? Scandal, scandalous, scandalize. It means to trip up to ensnare, as in to cause to sin. Apostasy, or the renunciation of the way of Jesus, was possible. And Jesus knew this. He knew it would be possible to fall away when rough times were encountered. I don't know about you, but I felt a little caught off guard in the past year. Like, I haven't fallen away from my faith, but I have certainly felt off of my game. Ask my husband, Delwyn. I've walked around our house in this really fluffy purple bathrobe more days than I'd like to admit, asking questions, not even doing anything, just asking questions like, why am I here? What am I doing? How do I do this? What does work mean anymore? Like, really off my game. But for some people who feel tripped up, out of sorts, and discombobulated, that's equated to much more than just questioning. Last year, the Barna Group conducted a survey of church attendance during the pandemic. And since the pandemic, it's reported that 32%, almost one-third of practicing Christians, have stopped attending church all together. Not just like watching online, five minutes here, five minutes there. For those of you still watching, thank you. You've made it this far and keep coming with us. Not just church hopping to the churches that are open, 
but completely they have fallen away from the community of God altogether. That is alarming and yet not surprising. It's not surprising because we are in the midst of turbulent times. And Jesus knew even back then that turbulent times might equate to some people saying this is too much. I can't do this anymore. I'm not getting what I want out of this. My church isn't acting how I want my church to act. And so they fall away. Jesus lays it out really plainly here. The disciples are going to be thrown out of the synagogue. They might be killed. And, get this, those who kill and commit violence against them will think they're doing God a favor in service to him. How chaotic and confusing would that have been to the committed followers of Jesus here on earth? And then to be told he's leaving. And then after he leaves, to be assaulted with different ideologies and mistreatments proclaiming to be in service of God. I hear Jesus say this to his disciples, and I hear him saying this to us this morning, Mars Hill Bible Church. All this, all this I've told you so that you will not fall away. So that you will be prepared to be on mission despite the turbulence of the world around you and what's to come. There's so much in this chapter, we, we, will not, we do not have two days for us to stay seated here and online to go through every single significant deep dive and what we could talk about. But as I read through this one chapter, I noticed that the disciples were either explicitly or inherently asking questions of Jesus once they knew what they'd be facing. And I think at least a few of these questions might be the same ones that we've been asking. I know I've been asking them as I keep stepping forward into the unknown. So we're just going to walk through three questions, okay? The first is, who's going to help us? Who's going to help us? Jesus had laid out for them some pretty sobering realities that they were to face. And we see those come to fruition later on in the New Testament, including the book of Acts, as the early church was getting started, when Stephen was seized, for example, in Acts chapter 6. Here's just a couple of verses. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose. Pause here just for a moment. This is something I'm noticing just now. The, the scriptures say Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. Just because you're going through opposition doesn't mean that you are not walking in the grace of God. Just because you are going through opposition doesn't mean that you inherently are walking with the power of the Holy Spirit. Stephen was full of God's grace and power, and opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. 
So they stirred up. They stirred up. They stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. Not only do we see very quickly that what the scholarship of Albert Barnes says is true, that some of the most malignant foes which the Christians have ever had uh, in, uh, most of the Christians have ever had have been in the church, right? Because these were leaders of the synagogue stirring the people up, not outsiders, but insiders, but that even despite the scheming, misleading, and the attempts at divisive and destructive tactics, Jesus was leaving them with an advocate. The Holy Spirit. More changes were going to disrupt the Jewish, Jewish system of religion. There was going to be the abolition of sacrifices, changes to the priesthood, the understanding of the Sabbath. But Jesus knew they couldn't handle knowing all of this right now. He was gracious and merciful enough to say, you can't handle everything that I have to tell you about what changes are going to come. Friends, can I tell you that if Jesus told me ahead of time some of what would be to come and the invitations that he asked me to step into, guess what? I can't tell you I would have said yes. Sometimes Jesus withholds information because he doesn't want us to trust the information. He wants us to trust the Spirit of God. So what he did instead wasn't give them more details about systemic change or the outcomes he told them about the spirit of truth. Because when the spirit guides, the outcome is direct revelation from the Father through Jesus. Here's what Jesus told him. When he, the advocate, comes, he will, one, prove to the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. That's not our job. It is the spirit's job to prove the world to be in the wrong. He will guide you into all the truth. He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me. You know who that means won't have to do these things. It wasn't all on the disciples to figure it out in their own finite strength. He said, I'm sending you an advocate who will do all of these things. I don't know if you're like me in situations like this, but in the middle of turbulence, one of my personal bad instincts is to toughen up, put on my gear, say, bring it on, I got it. I got it, God. I will be the most extreme social distancer you've ever seen. I'm going to, mm, I'm going to make it work, right? Now, how would my airplane experience have changed if I had just poked my head out and asked a stewardess or a flight attendant for some help? I would have said, hey, I'm having a hard time here. Could you, trained professional, help me with my child? 
How differently could that have gone? Marcel, I think what I'm trying to get at is may we resist the urge in times of turbulence to underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit by trying to take matters into our own hands. We have help. We have help. The Spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong. The Spirit will guide us into all truth, not just to the right news source. The Spirit will tell us what is to come, and the Spirit will glorify Jesus. With February being Black History Month, let me just say this. Black History Month isn't for black people alone. Black History Month is to point to the ways that black Americans' lives have impacted all of us. It's all of our history. It's the history of the people of God submerged, intersected, and how we've all been impacted. So this month, Dallin and I make it a point to try and teach our kids something about um, black Americans. Every day of this month, we're playing music by black artists in our home at dinner time. But just this past weekend, he and I watched a documentary on Martin Luther King Jr. It was called King in the Wilderness. And there is this part of the documentary where one of his friends, Andrew Young, who was a politician, a diplomat, an activist, um, he was the executive director of the SCLC, or the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, he was reflecting on King's funeral. And as you know, King was murdered uh, for trying to promote nonviolent reconciliation and peace between races, which is a very hard thing to do. It cost him his life. But Andrew Young was reflecting on this. And he said, you know what, after that funeral, direct quote, we were not able to stay together without him. And the movement the movement of nonviolence began to fragment. And as he said this, you can see his face change because it was very clear that for all their passion, all their skill, all their commitment to the way of nonviolence, it was really Martin Luther King Jr. who held it together for them. And when King died, it hit Andrew Young. We can't do this anymore. Our movement's going to fall apart. Without Jesus, we see the early church take steps forward. And we know how it ends for Stephen. He ends up giving this long speech in chapter 7. And at the end, scripture says, the leaders of the Sanhedrin were furious at him. What's interesting is Stephen didn't react to their fury before he was killed. He didn't respond in anger back. Why? Because the movement that he was a part of had a helper that he believed would sustain him to the end. Acts 7.55, but Stephen, not just full of grace and power, but full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, filled with the power of the advocate, looked up to heaven. And do you know what he saw when he looked up? After enduring severe turbulence, 
After coming against great opposition, Scripture says he saw glory of God. And Jesus sitting next to him, he saw God the Father and Jesus the Son. There's something about enduring and navigating even the most severe turbulence, church. That is weathered when we know the source of our true help. Jesus left, but the advocate came. And scripture says the prince of the world, Satan, the enemy, stands condemned. Period. So I wonder if a part of what today is inviting us to is to receive afresh the Holy Spirit in our bodies, minds, words, thoughts, to see the Spirit moving amongst our brothers and sisters here and in the world, that we might bear witness not to the chaos, but to the revelation and glory of God in our midst. A second question that I think Jesus is is answering here in the text is how long will this last? If someone could just tell us how long, not give a projection, not give a guesstimate based on data, if someone could definitively tell us how long will I have cancer, how long will my child be going through this one very specific health crisis, how long will I be um, in tension with my neighbor or my brother-in-law or my mom, how long, Lord? Jesus pointed this out in verse 5, but it's very subtle. The disciples were less interested in where Jesus was going when he told them he was leaving. But he notes this, rather you are filled with grief because I have said these things. You are filled with grief because I have said these things. It's refreshing to me that the disciples didn't hear about the rough journey ahead for them and immediately jump with joy and positivity and say, you know what, bring it on. Bring it on. I got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. I'm really glad they didn't respond by skipping over the grief that was so natural for them to feel when Jesus told them, you are going to face some stuff. I'm really glad That the disciples show us that grief is an appropriate, unavoidable part of walking with Christ. There might be points at which what feels like distance between us and feels more real than what he's doing around us. There might be points when the reality of opposition and unforeseen chaos catches off guard. And that is part of the journey The disciples then, they kind of share this funny moment in the text where they have all these questions and they turn not to Jesus, but to one another. Like, do you you think he's going to tell us where he's going? Like, what do you think? You think he's going to, where do you think he's going? How long he's going to be gone? What? Hey, James, James, what are you saying? Like, this really interesting moment where they're talking to one, Jesus is right there. They're talking to one another. He perceives the questions they have in their hearts. And what I think is so tender and compassionate about him is that he displays that he knows their hearts by answering their questions and acknowledging the heaviness of reality. 
He says, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. This word in the Greek that means to come into being. Not to switch on and off like a light switch, but to come into being like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Your joy will come into, a, into being. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one not the Sanhedrin, not the leaders of the synagogue, not the opposition. No one will take away your joy. What I find so interesting is that Jesus, he's talking to this group of young men, and yet he uses this imagery of childbirth, something that they have not experienced, to talk about their lament, their grieving, and their heaviness in a way that for me, as a mother reading the text, I understand so intimately. Now, I know not every woman is a mother, some by choice, others not by choice. And I know that motherhood looks different for all of us. Some of us have not birthed our children, but we have loved them from our hearts or as grandmothers, aunts, friends. But what Jesus talking about childbirth here does is it acknowledges the intensity and the presence of pain while naming that something else has the power to eclipse it. I can tell you how badly childbirth, I won't tell you in detail, but I can tell you it hurts. And yet, to see my child, it didn't take the pain away, but something else was greater than the pain that I was experiencing in the moment, and that was deep love. This is kind of like taking my kids to the doctor. For all you kids in the room or watching online, when you go to the doctor for your annual checkup, and the doctor says, well, it's time for your shot. It's time to get your flu shot. I don't know if you're one of these people or if you have a child like this, but one of my children who shall remain nameless cries the hardest and the loudest before the nurse even comes in the room. She can already anticipate the pain. The pain is so real to her, you don't even need a needle. You don't even need a needle. She just starts crying and willing. I don't wanna, I don't wanna. Well, now you know who it is because I only have one daughter who's, who uh, has words. I don't wanna. Mommy, I don't want to do it. It's going to hurt so much. Just tears and tears and tears. But then it's like magic because our sweet doctor also brings in a bag of toys. And after the shot happens, my child sees the bag of toys. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, that was so easy, Mom. I didn't even cry at all. What? There was something else, even though the Band-Aid is still bleeding a little bit, even though her arm is still throbbing, there was something else that eclipsed the pain, and that was joy for something before her. Are you with me? Jesus is saying, not that we should ignore grief, not that we should put lament aside or undermine the pain that other people are feeling in this moment. I think part of why this season has been so hard is some people are trying to undermine the pain and the grief that others are feeling and saying it's wrong. Jesus says, no, it's not that I want you to undermine each other's pain. 
But I want you to know that something else greater, more powerful can eclipse it. And that's joy. I will see you again, Jesus says. The turbulence is temporary. The sting of death and the anxiety of the present age will not endure forever because as Jesus told them, the father himself, just like the mother herself, loves them. He's saying, you don't need to come through me. The father loves you directly. Ask him, ask him anything in my name. Ask him in alignment with the will of God. Ask him. Because he loves you, ask him, talk to him, have a relationship with him. Ask him, the Father himself loves you. We have a Father who is so willing to give. We have a Father who's so willing to give joy. How long will this last? We don't know, but we know the turbulence is temporary. Final question, where do we go from here? In the past few months, this gets personal to this congregation, okay? People have passed away. Marriages have been tested. Some people are wrestling with mental health issues and not because of anything that they would consider big, but because they can't quite still understand how to be a present parent and work at the same time. We have people who are figuring out what's going on with my finances? Where is food going to come from? There are issues that some of us a year ago wouldn't dare have imagined we would be traveling through right now. This isn't all political. This isn't all about politics or the president. This isn't all about that. Sometimes it's more intimate than any one of us would ever speak. There are things going on and the turbulence is so real. Some of us are simply tired. And maybe the question has come, like, am I getting this right? Am I doing, am I, Jesus, are you, are you real? Are you going to do the thing that you said you were going to do? Like, is something wrong with me? Something going on with my beliefs? Like, what's, what's going on? For some of us, you're more sure than ever. This season has clarified a lot of things. You're more sure than ever. But this text ends with Jesus leveling the playing field amongst his disciples. They tell him he's now seeking clearly. And now they see and perceive that he knows all things. They're saying, well, now you've stopped talking in the parables and the metaphors. And now we understand what you're saying. So we believe you're from the, we believe you, Jesus. And Jesus asks them a question back. Do you now believe do you now believe, is how I imagine him asking it, do you now believe? A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered. Each of you to your own home, you will leave me all alone. He tells his closest followers, you're going to leave me. 
in fact, we know that one of them already has. Someone's already betrayed him. Someone's going to deny him. Someone is going to doubt him. He says, you're gonna leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. The disciples thought they believed, they were confident in their faith and yet overly self-confident. And it would turn out that in mere moments, Jesus would be arrested and his disciples would scatter. Church, it's inevitable that we are going to scatter. We're not going to walk out our faith perfectly. There will be times when it will be true for Jesus to say, you've left me. And yet he's not alone. In the midst of his own personal agony and turbulence, he was being comforted by his father. And he left them by reminding them why he told them about all of this. Not so that in knowledge they could have peace. Not so that in their own strength they could have peace. Not so that in a system or an institution or another ideology they could have peace. He told them this, I have told you these things so that in me, in me you may have peace. And then he reiterates, in this world you will have trouble. Trouble is a part of the journey. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. I don't know what trouble looks like for you. But this, this definition of take heart, um, it, it startles me. It, it kind of takes me aback. It kind of, it's, it's left me really mind-boggled. Because this phrase, to take heart, means to take courage and to be of good cheer. He tells them, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You might even be killed for this faith. But be of good cheer. Not because you have done anything to figure this out. Not because you've done anything to overcome, even in your own strength, but because I have. I win, Jesus says. I am victorious. I have left the enemy defeated. I am the light and the darkness. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. I have overcome. Thomas R. Kelly, one of my favorite books, um, I'm talking about peace. He says, the experience of peace is the experience not of an action, but of power. The experience of peace is not of an action, but of power. And the experience of power is the experience of a pursuing love. A love that comes after you. A love that chases you down. A love that wants to find you in its way untiringly 
to victory. God's love isn't just a diffused benevolence. Where do we go from here? In him. We draw closer to Christ. We find ourselves wrapped in him. We hide in the shadow of his wings. We take refuge on him as the rock. Because in this world, you will have trouble, church. But believe it or not, it is possible to be of good cheer because we serve a God who has overcome the world. That's the good news today. And so before we turn to the table, I want you to do this. If you find yourself in a particularly rattling kind of turbulence along the journey right now, I just want you to put your hand over your heart. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to raise your hand. Just right where you are sitting. Just put your hand over your heart. For some of you, your heart is broken. Or your heart is empty. Or it feels tumultuous and confused. You feel like you don't know the way to go. It feels too fast. It feels like you're moving at 100 miles a minute. There's so many different states of heart right now. And I'm putting over my hand over my heart right now because I'm with you. I'm with you. You at home too, if you have your hand over your heart, I'm with you in this. This isn't just performative. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray that we would have the courage to ask the Father who loves us for a joy and a peace that is possible in the midst of rough waters ahead that we would be a church that would not fall away and give in to divisiveness or distraction, but that in grace and truth, we would be a church that brightly proclaims the witness and the glory of God to the watching world. So Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus was so kind enough to tell us what the road ahead would be like, and it wasn't an easy one. Thank you that he gave it away that the ruler of the world would be condemned. (laughs) Thank you that he chose the cross in obedience. Thank you that even when his disciples left him, he wasn't alone. Thank you that power is available through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that even though we might be full of grace and power, that even when opposition comes, you are with us. God, I pray for every broken heart online, every grieving heart, every confused heart, every lost heart, every empty heart that desperately needs to know your peace. The Spirit whispers, take heart, take heart, take courage, be of good cheer. I have overcome. The turbulence won't last always. 
God, we know you're with us and we thank you for your presence. And as we come to the table, we come expecting to be nourished by a meal that will fill us as your spirit fills us. Fill us with a reminder of why you came and who you left us with. Church, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night he was betrayed, on the night that began his disciples leaving him, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Just for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup. And in the same way, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So Holy Spirit, come. Rest on this meal. May it nourish us and be for us the body and the blood of Christ. Would you take our grief, fill us with your peace. Would you take our sorrow and remind us that joy is possible. Lord, we ask for that this morning. Thank you, Spirit. Amen. Friends, we are joined by brothers and sisters across the world. Turbulence isn't just present here, it's present everywhere for the homeless, the hungry, those in the middle of government unrest, those who've been displaced, the refugee, the orphan, the widow, all across the world. And yet together, we proclaim in full faith and with cheer, with heart, the mystery of our faith that Christ has died Christ is risen and Christ will come again. So church, if you're here, I believe we have elements on the tables by the prayer stations. You can see them on the individually wrapped uh, body and blood of Christ. And if you're at home, use whatever elements are for you at home. But receive who you are now, the body of Christ. Amen.